Jesus, the shepherd, is gathering a flock under himself. This is the big idea of John chapter 10 and verse 16. This is the big idea of this verse. Again, let me just read it. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is the big idea of this one verse. Jesus is gathering a flock under himself as the shepherd of the sheep. But this is not just the big idea of John chapter 10 and verse 16. This is basically the storyline of the Bible. This is basically summative of everything that we read from Genesis to Revelation. And I stopped on verse 16 alone because it's helpful sometimes just to zoom out and remember the big picture of the Bible. As Providence would have it, tonight's message from Exodus is also a zoomed out message because it's coming from what is likewise a summative text. Piper calls these passages, like what we're looking at this morning, what we'll look at this evening, mountaintop passages. He explains that uh, as we make our way through the Bible, and we work generally uh, here at CIBC verse by verse through books of the Bible, he explains that that method of studying the Bible is kind of like walking through paths. Um, perhaps you're in some heavily wooded area and you're walking sometimes uphill and sometimes downhill. Sometimes you're making left turns, sometimes you're making right turns. and uh, You can't necessarily see the stars or the sky above you to see where the sun is in position, its position in the sky or where the stars are. So you don't really know whether you're going north or south or east or west or... And you're just very much looking at what's in front of you. So you see this tree and you see this stone and you see all of the minute details. But he says sometimes you come up to a crest, uh, maybe the top of a ridge or a mountaintop. And from there you can get a lay of the land. And that helps you then when you descend from there and go back down into the minute details, it helps you to remember kind of roughly where you are and it helps you to situate yourself uh, in, on your journey through the Bible in a particular context. And so some, from time to time it's helpful just to stop at these mountaintop passages and remember as we work our way through and see all of the complexity and all of the minute detail in John, basically what's happening in John is that Jesus is here to be our shepherd and to gather sheep to himself. In fulfillment of so many promises of old, uh, Jesus is bringing things to a head, bringing things to a culmination. It's very, the Bible is very, very simple. We are like sheep without a shepherd. And all we like sheep have gone astray and God sent Jesus to be our shepherd and he's gathering us to himself. It's helpful sometimes just to zoom out. So that's what we're doing this morning um, and this evening, by the way. So we'll have two mountaintop passages today, Exodus 15 tonight. And John 10, 16 this morning. So let's jump right in. When Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, Jesus is not talking about other religions, but Gentiles. Broadly, there are two types of universalism in contrast to what we might call 
Christian exclusivism. So Christian exclusivism would be what essentially we hold to in our church and what the Bible teaches, which is that people need to trust in Jesus and believe in Him in order to be saved. We read that very plainly throughout the whole Bible. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. The implication is whoever does not believe in Him will perish and not have everlasting life. And so basically, um, the position uh, that we hold is that you need to believe in Jesus to be saved. And that is called, in theological terms, Christian exclusivism. There are two kinds of universalism in opposition to what we might call Christian exclusivism. One is just that everybody everywhere will be okay in the end, in whatever way you define that, whatever way you understand that. Uh, essentially, it's a denial of hell. There is no hell. Everything's going to be alright. We're all going to be uh, okay with God in the end. Everything is going to be alright. And that's wildly far from what the Bible teaches, which we'll talk about in a moment. Then there's another kind of um, universalism, which is usually called not universalism, but inclusivism, Christian inclusivism. And this is kind of a conditional universalism in which it says, well, you don't actually have to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. Yes, Jesus is the only way of salvation, but you don't need to be conscious that Jesus is saving you in order to be saved. And so if somebody is just as sincere of a person as they can be and trying as much as they can to be a good person and to walk according to whatever light they have, then Jesus will save them. And even if they never heard the name Jesus throughout the course of their life, perhaps they were born in a, a non-Christian nation and they grew up around people that uh, don't know about Jesus and, and never believed in Him and no one brought a Bible to them, no one brought the Gospel to them. And they just tried to just look around them, observe from what we can see in creation that there is a God, tried to frame their lives according to natural law that, yeah, it makes sense that we're not going to hurt and harm one another, that we should treat one another kindly, that we should do unto others as we would have them do unto you. If you are a sincere, moral person, Jesus will save you, even if you're not conscious of Jesus saving you. That's basically Christian inclusivism. So according to Christian inclusivism, yes, Christians go to heaven, but so do good Buddhists, and so do good Muslims, and so do good whatever else that's out there. According to Christian inclusivism, um, it's not just people that believe in Jesus that will be saved. Now, both of these are contrary to Scripture, but both of these are argued for from John 10 and verse 16. And so the universalist says, well, even Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. So, obviously, there are people other than Christians who will be saved. Namely, the whole world 
everyone will. A loving God would never send anyone to hell, as some might argue. Or others would say, well, yes, insincere and bad people go to hell. But good people of all religions, sincere people of all religions, will be saved in the end. As Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Therefore, it's not only Christians, but, you know, good pagans that will also go to heaven. This is why I'm bringing this up in this context, because John 10.16 is often cited as a proof text. But John 10.16 can't mean something that is plainly contradicted elsewhere in Scripture. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. Um, I mean, Jesus plainly teaches, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus himself teaches that you need to come to him. Jesus doesn't just teach that he is the only Savior, um, as, as if that was somehow compatible with being unconsciously saved by him. Jesus teaches, come to me, come to me. And so Jesus isn't here contradicting himself in other places, nor is Jesus contradicting the rest of Scripture. And to defeat total universalism, all we have to do is demonstrate that there is a hell. If there is a hell, as some people will go to, then obviously not all people everywhere will be saved by Jesus. And therefore they are not the referent to sheep that are not of this fold. So in Matthew 25... 31 to 46, we read this. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. So is Jesus um, giving us metaphors and pictures and allegories and so on and so forth, or is He just telling us plainly what will happen? He's just telling us plainly what will happen. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So there is a picture here of sheep and goats, but what do they represent? People, all the nations. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. We really could just stop here, couldn't we? Because this obviously shows that not all people are sheep. So obviously total universalism is contradicted by the Bible already. If there are goats, then therefore not all are sheep. But let's go on. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed. Listen. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, 
into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So is Jesus using still the metaphor of sheep and goats? No. Jesus is telling us literally what will happen. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Listen, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the scripture very, very, very plainly teaches that there is eternal punishment. It is set in opposition to eternal life. So there is eternal life and there is eternal punishment. And it is eternal life and eternal punishment. So some say, well, there's a hell, but essentially it's just a purification process. And sooner or later, everyone ends up in life. But... Whatever eternal means with reference to life, it must mean the same thing with reference to punishment. That's just good, basic English grammar, not just hermeneutics. But when you read the same thing in the same context, you should apply to it the same meaning. So we definitely see a hell. So those who say, I have other sheep who are not of this fold, and they say, well, therefore, it's all people everywhere. It's not just Christians who will be saved, you bunch of narrow-minded bigots. All people will be saved. Jesus teaches as much. Well, contrary to that, Jesus clearly teaches that there is a hell. There is a place of eternal punishment. And some will go there. So, total universalism is out. You can't make a biblical case for that. To defeat conditional universalism, or which is more, more generally is actually called Christian inclusivism, which is again the idea that, yes, yeah, some people are going to go to eternal punishment. But there are lots of people, including non-Christians, who will be saved by Jesus. The Christians are conscious of being saved by Jesus. The non-Christians are not conscious of being saved by Jesus, but they're saved by Him anyway. And basically, it's the sincere, good people of the world in whatever religion, whatever culture they find themselves in. Well, all we have to demonstrate here is... um, Well, really, there's two lines of argumentation where we could take. One is the gospel. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags, right? There is none righteous, no, not one. So there actually are no good people among the Christians or the Muslims or the Buddhists or whoever else. Like even even among the Christians, we're not we're not better people than everyone else. That's not the way the gospel works. We don't think we're so righteous that we go to heaven and no one in other religions is righteous and that's why they go to hell. So, I mean, one is just, if you understand the gospel, then you can't predicate that good people in other religions are saved by Jesus. If they're good, what do they even need to be saved from in the first place? That doesn't really make sense. But another line of argumentation that we could take is just to answer the question of what happens to supposedly good people outside of Christ Jesus? And the answer to that question is not hard to find. It's an unpopular answer, yes, but it is not a difficult 
to understand answer. In Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 15, we read this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. By implication, everyone who does not call on the name of the Lord will not be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? The assumption here is that you need to call on the name of the Lord and therefore people need to be told about the Lord so that they can call on Him. Romans Chapter 5 says that sin is not counted where there is no law. So the argument goes, well, good people in other religions in other places in the world have never actually been taught God's law. And so they're doing the best they can without the law. And as the Bible says, sin is not counted where there is no law. And so these people are not counted in God's eyes as being guilty because there is no law. So until we go and preach God's law to them, they are not counted as sinful. But the verse before says this, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Well, that does two things. That informs us what's meant by law. And what it means in that context is uh, the old uh, covenant when it says that sin is not counted, or pardon me, where it says that sin was in the world before the law was given. It's speaking of the old covenant. Sin was in the world before Mount Sinai. And yes, it's true that sin is not in the world, pardon me, that sin is not counted where there are no moral imperatives, but it explains that even up until Sinai, people died. Therefore, sin was counted even before Sinai, which means that there were moral imperatives. And so if there were moral imperatives even before Sinai, then what that means is even where there is not yet a revelation of God's law, you know, whether it was in Philistia or Moab or Ur of the Chaldees, where Abram came from, which we read earlier in the service, wherever it was elsewhere in the world where they did not have the revelation of um, God's law given at Sinai, still they were counted as sinners, which is why they died. Romans chapter 2 explains that Gentiles... Uh, It says, when Gentiles who do not have the law, the old covenant, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. So what it's explaining is that, essentially, when the Ten Commandments were given at Sinai, it actually wasn't the first time that God's law was given to mankind. It was clarified at Sinai, but ever since the garden, God's law has been written on human hearts. 
And so we are sinning against God's law uh, even when we live in a time or place where we don't actually have the Ten Commandments written down and propagated to us and proclaimed to us. Therefore, Romans 10 is the right logic. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People who are outside of Christ Jesus need to believe in Him and trust in Him because they are guilty for sinning against the law that was written on their conscience. Romans 2 teaches us that. Romans 5 teaches us that God counts them as sinners, which is why they die, even though they haven't heard the gospel and haven't maybe had God's law preached to them. They need to be saved. And Romans 10 explains how they can be saved. We need to go and tell them about Jesus so that they may call on the name of the Lord. And so, um, this is another reason, by the way, that I stopped on John 10, 16. Not just to zoom out, but to deal with this misunderstanding. Because I think in this day and age, this kind of twisting of Scripture is becoming more and more prevalent. When Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, can He mean all people everywhere? No. Can He mean those in other religions that are good, sincere people but never heard of Jesus? Also, no. What Jesus means when He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, is not people of other religions, but rather Gentiles. The Jews of Jesus' day, as you know, tended to think that they were the only ones who could be favored by God, who could be loved by God, who could be accepted by God. There was a scorn for Gentiles. But it has always been God's intention to save both Jews and Gentiles. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we read this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What I want you to notice, just in laying the foundation for what we're going to go on to read, is that in Genesis 1, there is no demarcating between some people and others. The Lord did not say, let us make Jews in our image and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and so on and so forth, and the Gentiles. Rather, there's just man. And in the beginning, there is no demarcation. Demarcating between some persons um, and others happens only after the fall. But it does happen contra the universalists. In Genesis 4, for example, we read in just the second generation that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so God does begin to demarcate between some people and others. In chapters 10 and 11, we read God beginning to narrow His focus from dealing with people generically to dealing with one of the families on the earth. In chapter 10, we read of the 
descendants of Japheth, Ham, and Shem in that order. And then in chapter 11, it goes on to expand on Shem's descendants. You might remember from our series in Genesis that whoever is named last is going to be the focus of the story moving forward and everyone else who is named is just going to drop off. So Japheth's descendants and Ham's descendants are not really focused on. It's only Shem's from this point forward. We come down to Abram and now God is not only dealing with Shem's line, but even more specifically, now he's going to deal with Abraham's family. But in Genesis 12.3, we read that he is dealing with Abram um, in order that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what we see in the biblical storyline is that God does begin after the fall to narrow in his focus to deal with only some. But the end goal, even in dealing with a very, very small part of the earth's population, namely Abram's family, the end goal is that in Abram's family, all the nations of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so again, what is envisioned is a widening. I was just reading this week in my devotions, we can multiply examples, but for the sake of time I won't. But I was just reading in my devotions this week from Zechariah chapter 9. You have to excuse my slow page turning because my left thumb is still basically as good as useless. Um, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What does that make you think of? The triumphal entry, where Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time in preparation to be crucified. That's when this passage was fulfilled. The next verse goes on to say, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He who comes riding on a donkey will speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. The end goal has always been in God's mind, in God's plan, that not only Jews would be saved, though God narrowed his focus initially to deal with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the children of Jacob, or the children of Israel. God's goal, God's plan, God's decree has always been that, nevertheless, not only the children of Israel, but all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In view of all this, what Jesus means when he says in John chapter 10 and verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, he's referring to Gentiles, not to people of other religions, not to all people everywhere, but to Gentiles. Now, we are moving on from that first clause of John chapter 10 and verse 16, that first statement. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. 
And we're moving on to I must bring them also. I must bring them also. Jesus is going after each and every one of his sheep. This raises the doctrine of election. Now, again, every time I teach on this, I like to mention this quote because it's funny and it makes a point. Okay, somebody asked John MacArthur, do you believe in the doctrine of election? And he said, he said well, of course I believe in it. That word is in the Bible. If you don't believe in the doctrine of election, it's, it's very simple. You just don't believe the Bible. Because the word election is actually in the Bible. So the question isn't, do you believe in election or not? The question that bears um, discussing and that we need to think about and that we need to wrestle with is what does the Bible mean when it says election? But the doctrine of election is most certainly in view here. So don't get your back up about the word election. Simply consider when we talk about it, are we saying what the Bible says about it or not? That's really the important question. But the word itself shouldn't alarm anybody because as MacArthur said, after all, it is in the Bible. So here we don't have the word election though. We have the word sheep. But follow. In John 10, 26, um, we read this. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, I'm going to come to exposit that section in a couple of weeks. But I simply want you to see for today that there are non-sheep. Okay? Jesus says in John 10, 26, You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So there are sheep and there are those that are not among Jesus' sheep. So there are sheep and there are non-sheep. We have to grant that. Now, John 10, 26 also shows that non-sheep are non-sheep by virtue of something other than disbelieving. So what a lot of people will do is they'll say, well, the sheep are those who believe, but if you don't believe, that makes you a non-sheep. But what does John 10, 26 say? You do not believe, therefore, you are not my sheep? No. It says the opposite. It says, you do not be believe because you are not among my sheep. In other words, you are not my sheep, therefore, you do not believe. So disbelief is presented to us in John 10, 26, as a consequence of being a non-sheep. The non-sheep will not believe. As opposed to non-sheep being a consequence of disbelieving. Are you following with me so far? The logic of John 10.26 is not, you don't believe, therefore you're not a sheep. The logic of John 10.26 is, you're not a sheep, therefore you don't believe. Now, non-sheep then, we have to ask, how did non-sheep become non-sheep? Because they didn't become non-sheep by not believing. How then did some people become sheep 
and some people become non-sheep. And this is where we come to the doctrine of election. I would turn your attention back to John chapter 6, where I believe we have, in some ways, an even clearer and more indisputable text on the doctrine of election than John, or pardon me, than Romans chapter 9. John chapter 6 is crystal clear. Listen to verses 37 to 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, so follow this. There are those given from the Father to the Son. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me. There are those given from the Father to the Son. All that the Father gives to the Son will come to Him. So everybody that the Father gives to the Son will believe in Jesus. And Jesus will see to it that He doesn't lose even one of those whom the Father gives to the Son. Jesus says that he, he says it almost in the exact words that I just said in verse 39. I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So the father gives people to the son, sees to it that those people come to Jesus, and then sees to it that those people are not lost, but saved. Now, verse 40 says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And as I've said, we need to proclaim that without reserve. Anyone and everyone who will come to Jesus will be saved. You don't have to try to figure out whether you're elect or not before you come to Jesus. You just come to Jesus. And we preach the gospel that way. Some might say, okay, so there are some whom the Father guarantees will come. But he proclaims the gospel more widely, and perhaps there are some whom, for the sake of argument, the Father has not given to the Son, who nevertheless come. But look at John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay, so you can't come unless you're drawn by the Father. Okay, well then maybe for the sake of argument, the Father draws, but people resist the drawing. But what does it say in verse 44? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up, that is the person whom the Father draws, on the last day. So we're down to this. There are people whom the Father gives to the Son. He then draws those people to faith in the Son. Make sure that they persevere in the faith so that they do not fall away but are rather saved on the last day. And if somebody is not given 
by the Father to the Son and not drawn by the Father, they can't come and they won't come and they won't be saved on the last day. This is the sobering but clearly logical other side of the doctrine of election. The sheep are those given by the Father to the Son and the non-sheep are those not given by the Father to the Son. And so when we look back at John chapter 10 and verse 26 where Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? In view of what's gone before in John chapter 6. If you haven't been given by the Father to the Son, and if the Father is not therefore drawing you, you're going to disbelieve. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, back to John chapter 10 and verse 16. When Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, who is he talking about then? The elect among the Gentiles. Jesus is saying there are people from not of this fold, in other words, non-Jews, who have nevertheless been given to me by the Father. And I am going to go after each and every one of them and make sure that I bring them. These sheep from this other fold need to be brought. And in the context, we might ask, to where? To green pastures, which is the abundant life we talked about over these last few weeks. Just as the sheep of this fold needed to be brought to these green pastures. Look back at John 10 verse 4 and then 10 and 11. When he has brought out all his own. So he brings them out of his fold. And then where does he go? He goes before them. And the sheep follow him. For they know his voice. And then where are they going? They are going in and out to find pasture. Verse 9. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus has taught that he takes the sheep and brings them out of the fold into the pasture where they have abundant life. Then when Jesus says in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also. Where is he bringing them to? He's going to go to their fold, and he's going to do the same thing that he did at the beginning of this chapter. He's going to call them out, And his sheep will hear his voice and will respond and will come out of their fold to the pasture. And then, as Jesus says in John chapter 10 and verse 16, consequently, there will be one flock, one shepherd. There will be those from the Jewish fold and those from the Gentile fold. And Jesus will have brought them all out to the same place to this abundance of life, to this pasture. And there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is what Jesus means when he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. 
Jesus is going after each and every one of his sheep. Remember, we're zoomed out here. We're looking at the big picture of history, the big picture of the Bible, the big picture of John. Why is Jesus even on earth to do the events recorded in John and to say the words recorded in John? Why is he here? He is here as a shepherd to go after each and every one of his sheep from among both the Jews and the Gentiles. Ye chosen seed of Israel's race, ye ransomed from the fall, hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. Jews and Gentiles together, all of Christ's sheep, for whom he has come, every one of them, each and every one of them will be brought out into the pasture, into the abundant life that Jesus came to bring. The Father gave each of them to the Son. The Father will draw each of them by His Spirit to the Son. The Father will preserve them by His Spirit so that none fall away and that Jesus does not lose even one that the Father has given to Him, but raises each and every one of them up on the last day. If I hired a shepherd to get my sheep from this place, point A, to this place, point B, and half my sheep show up at point B, I will hold the shepherd accountable. And if he says, well, you know sheep, they're stubborn, they're hard ears, they don't listen, man, you know sheep, it's not my fault that all your sheep aren't here. It's the sheep's fault that they're not here. I will hold the shepherd accountable because he has a charge to keep. He has to make sure he does not lose any of my sheep. The Father has given a charge to the Son. It is the Father's will that Jesus should lose none of those that he has given to him. And so Jesus, by His Spirit, goes after each and every one of His sheep and makes sure that He brings each and every one of them into the pasture that He has won for them. He calls them out of whatever fold they're in, the Jewish fold, the Gentile fold. If we may toss a uh, bone, so to speak, to the universalist, to the inclusivist, he calls them perhaps out of the Muslim fold, perhaps out of the Hindu fold, perhaps out of the Buddhist fold, the pagan fold, the atheistic fold. Yes, the Lord saves people from every tribe and language and people and nation. The Lord saves people from every culture. The Lord saves people from every society, from every demographic, from every race. Yes. The Lord saves all kinds of people. Yes, the Lord's love is broader for those in the West. The Lord's love, or pardon me, the Lord's love is broader than for merely only those in the West. The Lord's love is broader 
than merely for those who are in Christianized nations. Yes, it is true. There is a wideness in God's mercy such that it extends to the ends of the earth. But each and every one of His sheep must be called out of the fold that they're in to hear His voice and to follow Him to the pasture to which He will lead them. And there, there will be one flock one shepherd, when his sheep have heard his voice and have followed him and they have come out of their fold to be with the shepherd in that pasture. Jesus has come to go after each and every one of his sheep and he will get them. Now listen, and this is our biggest point of application here. Jesus has called us to work with him in his mission. Obviously, we know Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. I don't even think I really need to turn there in my Bible. But for propriety's sake, Matthew chapter 28, 18 to 20, what do we read there? You know already, probably, even if you haven't got your thumb in the spot. What's in Matthew 28, 18 to 20? Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is the job of the church. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You might object. Well, he was talking to the apostles. Nonsense. You can't can't sincerely object that this doesn't apply to you and that it only applies to the apostles when it's clear, it's clear that that would be a ludicrous mandate for Jesus to give to 12 peasants at the top of a hill 2,000 years ago. You personally, you 12 guys, go and make disciples of all nations, of every tribe and language and people and nation. You 12 peasants, Go and gather a multitude so large that no one can count. So that gathered around my throne in eternity, there will be a multitude so large that no one can count. Singing the praises of the triune God. You 12 peasants, go do that. It's so patently obvious Manifest that Jesus was speaking to the twelve apostles, but he was speaking to them as representatives of the church. This was the marching orders that Jesus left for the church. He gave this mandate to the apostles to teach, to preach, to rule in his name, to set up the church as the New Testament institution that it is, to communicate his doctrine his rules, his order, and his mission to that church. Jesus gave this commission to the apostles to that end, that they might teach it and relay it to the church in order that we, in every age since, might be faithful to this mandate. Let's continue reading then. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has called us to work with him in his mission of going after each and every one of his sheep from among the Jews and the Gentiles. That's for sure the most well-known passage that I could cite to make that point. But this is not just a New Testament thing. Remember, I went through some Old Testament texts earlier to demonstrate that God's design from the beginning is that both Jews and Gentiles would be saved. That all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Back in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, I read that creation mandate. Let me read it again. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Listen, sin is now part of that which must be overcome in order for the original creation mandate to be fulfilled. The earth can't be properly subdued. Mankind can't have proper dominion over the earth while sin exists. It won't be the end for which God gave this commission to Adam until sin is gone and eradicated. Jesus is the second Adam who will bring to completion that which the first Adam failed to do. Adam should have worked at this mandate and he never should have fallen into this sin in Genesis 3 that he did. And then Cain and Abel and Seth and everyone that came after them should have joined with Adam, their covenant head, in doing what Adam was commissioned to do. Namely, to exercise dominion over the earth. But Adam failed to do that. Now what we see happening is that Christ Jesus is doing just that. Christ Jesus, as the second Adam, has been given a kingdom, dominion. Remember we read? And His rule shall be throughout the whole earth. Right? From Zechariah, remember we read that? And so what we are called to do as the church is join with Jesus in this mission of establishing His dominion. That involves now, after the fall, evangelism and discipleship. Then as we go on in the Old Testament, we see God dealing with Israel primarily. But God's dealings with Israel are partially to manifest Himself to the nations. In Exodus, for example, we read several times that God did this, that the Egyptians would know that He is the Lord. That the Egyptians would know, that the Egyptians would know, that the Egyptians would see and know. We read this so many times throughout the Ten Plagues narrative. 
And then in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 38, who comes up out of the land of Egypt? Well, the children of Israel, obviously. We all know that, but you might have missed verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them. That means Gentiles. That means Egyptians. From the beginning, God has been dealing with people on earth with the eventual goal of blessing all the families of the earth. But even from the beginning, Gentiles have been welcome to come to Him, to take shelter under the wings of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Isaiah 42, verse 6, and 49, verse 6, are, are part of what are servant songs in Isaiah, where we read about uh, God's servant being a certain way and doing certain things. And obviously we know that ultimately has reference to the Messiah. Bear this in mind as we read verse four, chapter 42 and verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you, that is God's servant, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. This is what God's servant will be. A light for the nations. Isaiah 49 and verse 6. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what God's servant will do. But this is what God's servants already should have done. What does, what does Jesus do but what God's faithful people should have been doing? Right from the beginning, God's people should have been a light to the nations. We look back, for example, at Exodus again, chapter 19 which by God's grace we will come to in a couple of months. But in Exodus chapter 19, we read this. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. From the beginning... The people of Israel should have been a kingdom of priests. They never attained this, you know, because they didn't um, obey God's voice and keep His covenant. And so they never became what was envisioned here. But from the beginning, they should have been a kingdom of priests. And what is the role of priests? To represent the people on, or, yeah, to represent the people before God and to represent God to the people. In other words, to mediate God to the people. If Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, well, what does that mean? That they would mediate God to the nations. This, from the beginning, is what was envisioned if Israel had been a faithful covenant partner to God. And so Jesus comes 
as essentially a true and better Israel, the servant of the Lord. Remember, Israel is called God's son. And in the Old Testament, where it says, out of Egypt I called my son, the referent is the nation of Israel. But Matthew says, when Jesus, the baby, returns from Egypt after Herod massacres the children, thus the scripture was fulfilled, out of Egypt I called my son. And so essentially what Jesus comes to do is be the second Adam, to exercise proper dominion over the earth. And we partner with our covenant head as Adam's children should have partnered with him in the doing of that, which involves evangelism and discipleship. Jesus comes as a second and better Israel, a second and better servant of God, and becomes a light to the nations, becomes a priest for the nations. And we join with him. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 borrows the language of Exodus 19. We become in Christ Jesus. Bear with my useless left thumb one more time. We become in Christ Jesus a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous life. And Revelation picks up on the same language. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We have the mandate, which is also a privilege of working with Christ, the shepherd, as he gathers each and every one of his sheep to himself, from the Jewish fold, from the Gentile fold. This is what God envisioned, planned, decreed from the beginning. This is the storyline of the Bible. This is the storyline of history that Jesus is the shepherd for sheep who have gone astray and that Jesus goes after each and every one of those who have been given Him by the Father. Jesus goes after each and every one by His Spirit and each and every one of them is drawn and is preserved and is unfailingly saved. Because Jesus is a good shepherd. But we also have the mandate, which is also a privilege, of joining with Jesus, partnering with Jesus in the going to get those sheep, all of those given by the Father to the Son, and bringing them out of their fold, whatever fold they may be in, into the pasture where Jesus is, where abundant life is. We have this mandate, which is also a privilege, of seeing that great purpose fulfilled to which all things are heading. What Jesus says here in John chapter 10 and verse 16, then there will be one flock and one shepherd.